0: From Kirkco Media.
1: Doctor Doctor, you gotta help me see what's going on. Doctor, Doctor. This isn't the same rehashed discussion of COVID. This is, well, more worth listening to. This is stuff that you need to know. This is medicine. We're still practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. Of course, first, my friend and co-host, Zooming in, Dr. Steven Tabak. He's a quadruple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care, and neurocritical care. And he continues to fight on the front lines of the COVID battle here in California, for which we are eternally grateful. Steve, how you doing?
2: Hey, Bill. Good to see
1: you. And our very special guest, Dr. George Rutherford. He is the internationally lauded Head of Infectious Disease and Global Epidemiology at the UCSF School of Medicine. He is also UCSF's Professor of Pediatrics and Adjunct Professor School of Public Health at California, Berkeley. I had a chance to print out George's CV. It's 126 pages long with 221 published papers and so many important accolades. So I'm going to read the whole thing to you now. Only kidding. Dr. Rutherford, although socially distanced, thanks so much for joining. Real pleasure. So, Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics, Director at the Prevention and Public Health Group. What do you do?
0: Well, I'm an academic, so I teach school, right? I do research and I provide advice. So, the mission of anybody in academic, any academic medical entity Is education, research, clinical care, and public service. So, my clinical care is really the clinical practice of public health. And I advise the city health department, San Francisco Department of Public Health, the California Department of Public Health, and some of the various health departments around the state on approaches to
1: controlling the COVID epidemic. You did mention that your research is partly funded by CDC.
0: Yes, that's correct. Yeah.
1: Tell us a bit about that and how that affects your work during these crazy days. So I've worked with CDC for decades,
0: and most recently I've been doing predominantly HIV-related work in developing countries as part of the Presidential Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. I have a large, competent, very competent research group that basically tries to help governments and occasionally universities, but mostly governments and CDC missions in developing countries to understand what's going on with their HIV epidemics, how things are working to evaluate progress and to discover new ways to try and stop the spread of HIV and to try and improve clinical outcomes among people who already have HIV.
1: So cases per 1 million population worldwide is running at about 3,500. Cases per 1 million in the U.S. is running at about 19,300. So did we screw up or do we just have a population that's more difficult to manage?
0: Yes and yes. We have sixfold higher numbers of cases than we should have and other countries like India may eventually catch up. I think that the U.S. missed a major opportunity early on, and that was the problem with um, not having enough tests and having the wrong tests and having tests that didn't work and trying to control tests and trying to restrict how tests were being used and for whom they were being used. I think that there have always been, you know, a whole myriad of lack of policy leadership, which the states have taken over. And I think First of all, the Bay Area, in which the six county health departments acted in concert to move to a shelter-in-place ordinance early on, on March 16th. And there was a very good reason for March 16th. It was the day before St. Patrick's Day. And then later, the state moved in the same direction. So I think California has really been a leader in this. Now, you wouldn't know it from the last two months or three months since mid-June, when there's been a huge wave of, of new infection that's dissipated, but I think we still are leaders in this. We showed data today in the Medicine Grand Rounds at UCSF that looked at numbers of deaths per 100 cases. And in New York, it's at 10%. In San Francisco, it's 0.87%. So it's less than 1% in San Francisco. And the next best in a big city is something like 1.5%. Did we screw up as a country? Totally. Did we screw up regionally in, the North, in Northern California? I don't think so. Did we screw up as a state? somewhat. I think we made the reopening a little too easy. That's really hindsight.
1: Well, speaking about hindsight, just for a second, I mean, in New York, they've had 445,000 cases and 33,000 deaths. So they got a hold of this thing long before we did, but we've already exceeded the cases. We're up to 750,000 cases, almost 80% more than they've had. And we've had 14,000 deaths, half of what they've had. When you say that we as a country may have screwed up, do we have a hold of this thing now? And how much of it is that the population is not wearing masks enough, especially young people who've decided that they're not as susceptible?
0: What New York had was bad luck. And they had continuous importation from Europe and may have had, who knows, thousands of cases imported from Europe, each one of which starts a new chain of transmission. We in San Francisco, we probably had tens coming from Asia. And, and you know, the first death here was on February 6th, uh, and that was diagnosed retrospectively. A woman who'd attended a convention in Las Vegas, she was living in Santa Clara County near San Jose, and that convention probably had people from China there, or at least in the, at least in the hotel. And that's probably where she got it. If she'd come home and, and kind of hit a large crowd event at the wrong time with very high levels of virus in her nose and, and throat and spread it around... We could have been just as bad off as New York, but we weren't. And that's really a question of luck. So New York had bad luck. But guess what? We knew this was coming since the 31st of December. That's when the Hubei Provincial CDC notified the Central Chinese CDC that, oh, oh, by the way, we may have a little problem here. The Central Chinese CDC sent a team to Wuhan on December 31st and basically started, began an immediate investigation, started to close stuff down and to rein the whole thing in under control. That was the starting bell. I mean, there was basically two months lost. Now CDC will say, well, we were having we were we developed tests, you know, we did this, we did that. Yeah, that's true. But then the FDA threatened to decertify their laboratory that was producing tests, and they produced tests in the hundreds, not in the tens of thousands, which was what was needed. Thousands of people came from Europe to New York and it got spread around, helped by a couple of super spreader events where people infect, instead of one person, they infect hundreds of people at the same time.
1: Do we actually know who and where that was?
0: Yes. It was a lawyer who lived in New Rochelle who infected 121
1: people at his firm and at a synagogue. Wow. You know, if you don't mind me throwing your CV at you, it it says that at UCSF, some of your work is in immunizations and bioterrorism. Yeah. So let's start with the bioterrorism part. Is there anything here that mirrors that and... Have we now convinced the world that we are more susceptible to that issue because of our lifestyle?
0: Oh, well, I mean, Iran had just as big a gigantic epidemic as we did, as did China, as does Russia, as does India, as does West, Western Europe. So, I mean, we're hardly impervious.
2: No, but from, from a social perspective, because you know, we are so rebellious as a country, 50% of the population seems to be naysayers relative to public health whereas other countries perhaps are a little bit more cooperative
1: our economy is so important to us and whether or not we're a little uncomfortable because we want people to see our lips we seem to be lacking discipline
0: we have a hyper individualistic streak as part of the national psyche and it gets continuously promoted so wearing masks is important for three reasons okay number 1 you protect yourself from inhaling this virus we're talking predominantly droplet transmission and we're talking about close contact and if you have a mask on your chances of becoming infected go way down.
2: Do you have a feel in terms of numbers? To what degree you lower your risk by wearing a mask? Probably 60%. It depends on whether you have
0: glasses on or not, too. If you you have glasses on, especially safety glasses, you can make it almost negligible. The conjunct the lining around the eye, the thing that gets red when you get pink eye, is part of the respiratory epithelium and communicates with the respiratory epithelium. It's part of the respiratory tract and has the same receptors on it that the rest of the respiratory tract does. And so, yes, it can be a portal of entry, which is why we go to these elaborate lengths with face shields and safety glasses
1: and stuff. Interesting. You know, we had some shows in one of our sister shows here, Politics Meet Me in the Middle, where we talked to some university presidents and talked about how they were opening up their schools. And they all did so much work, at least looked like they were doing so much work. Are they talking to you? Are they asking you how they should do this or not do this?
0: Yeah, I'm on a UC-wide committee that basically tries to provide advice to the president of the UC system on a million things about public health around COVID virus, including screening, how to reopen, how not to reopen, what do you do when somebody's sick, how do you do contact tracing on campus, all those kinds of things. What'd you tell them? First of all, you got to decrease density. You're really talking about one person per room. So that cuts the size of enrollment in half.
2: And you're saying 5,000 people at risk versus 20,000 people at risk by, yeah. by re- reducing the size, classes and dorms, et cetera.
0: And then when there's somebody gets infected, you have pods of 10 people who have to go into quarantine. You know, if you get it done right, it's really complicated doing colleges. It's quite complicated doing high schools, too, because people change classes all the time.
1: You said that we can get away with kindergarten through third grade, basically. You're a pediatrician. And you said younger children are not that susceptible if they're infected, and they're not as transmissible generally. Can you explain that? Sure. The receptor
0: that you have, because like receptor is the only word I know, the protein on the surface of the cells that the virus attaches to to invade the cell, they're less dense. They're There are fewer of them per surface area in younger children than in adolescents and adults. So there are fewer susceptible ports of entry, basically. The observation is that there are not a lot of pediatric cases diagnosed. We know that there are pediatric cases, but they're just not as proportionately as many as in older age groups. The other thing we know is that children are less likely to develop severe complications. Now that doesn't mean they don't develop severe complications because they can and there are pediatric deaths. And then in household studies, if the first case in a household is a child, there's less transmission than if the first case in a household is an adult. So there are direct comparisons. Why is that? You know, there's a whole school of thought that says because they're short. <laughs> I, I kid you not.
2: With the, the aerosol hits your knees rather than your nose.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, you get coughed on your, on your thighs, right? But that's the observation, and that's the physiology behind it. The other thing is that the observations are around the world, all the outbreaks have been in middle schools and high schools. Yes, there was an outbreak in a summer camp in Georgia, but if you read through that and look at the timing of that carefully, it looks like all the kids were infected by counselors in the first three days they were there and rather than
1: transmitting it kid to kid. I've got a couple of grandkids, a four and a half year old and roughly a two year old. And believe it or not, while lots of schools are closed in California, theirs is not. How much do I have to worry as grandpa about getting near my kids or my kids' kids. We're supposed to see my kids for dinner tonight. Should I do it? Yeah, what are they gonna have? I was thinking about real Parmesan, is that a problem? No, that's pretty, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> the little kids aren't gonna eat much of that, so there's more for you, right? How much lower is the risk, if I'm willing to take some risk, that the kids could go to school and come home with a transmissible disease that I don't wanna have?
0: There's not a lot of risk. You know, the Swiss have actually issued an edict that it's okay for grandchildren to hug their grandparents. There's some very interesting kind of legislated things. My favorite was the Prime Minister of New Zealand sent a letter to every kid in New Zealand under the age of seven or eight or something and said that by decree, she declared the Easter Bunny an essential worker.
2: That's taxpayers' dollars really well spent. No, right?
0: I mean, yeah, it, in fact, it is probably,
1: you know? We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co Media, media for your mind. We're back with Dr. George Rutherford and Dr. Stephen Tabak. On a slightly more helpful basis for a minute, up until about a month ago, we would get our groceries either delivered or go to the grocery store. And you would have thought we were in a hazmat suit and going into a biohazard when we go to the grocery store. And then I would get home and douse everything, including the apple, in alcohol because I was worried that I was bringing home virus. I've been told that that might be overkill. So can we talk about surface transmission for a minute and what have you guys found out?
0: Yeah, that's overkill. Surface transmission, or as we say in the trade, fomite transmission, where you basically a surface has been contaminated by somebody sneezing or coughing on it, and you come along and you get it on your fingers and rub it in your eyes or nose, theoretically possible. It doesn't appear to be that big a problem epidemiologically. There are always sort of more facile explanations than that. Actually, the amount you need to get enough infectious virus may be on the order of a milliliter or so. So what I say is if it's not glistening, it's unlikely to be infectious, to have sufficient numbers of viral particles. You know, I don't flip out and do do crazy stuff. And I I wash my hands after I get out, but I don't bother to wash the fruit.
2: You'd mentioned that about 60% diminish transmission if you're wearing a mask and another 30% if you're wearing eyewear. Why are we not mandating eyewear as well? Just too big a nut to crack. We can barely get people to mask. So why bother adding the stress of goggles? Remember that that's just about protecting you. If you're infectious, your
0: mask cuts out 95% of your ability to transmit to other people. The third thing is because they cut down the number of viral particles that get through. If you do get infected, you're going to get infected with a lower dose of virus and you're going to have less severe disease, most likely. You protect yourself from infection, period. You protect others in case you're infected. And if you do happen to become infected, you're going to have less severe disease.
1: Interesting. Do I have to throw this mask out tomorrow?
0: No. You, you have your own mask, right? You're not sharing it with anybody. No. no. Okay.
2: Yeah. But you don't want to be touching the front of your mask if theoretically inhaling potentially you know, a viral particle.
0: Yeah. You take it off from the ears. You don't pull it off like this.
2: What are your thoughts about the Russian vaccine that supposedly is ready to be launched? Has Putin gotten it yet? I I think professional courtesy. I don't think he can actually get it. Oh, yeah? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The problem with the Russian vaccine,
0: it's a human adenovirus vectored vaccine, which means that they've taken a piece of viral RNA that codes for the spike protein, the the thing that sticks off the top of the virus that actually fuses with these receptors we were talking about. And once the adenovirus infects humans and the adenovirus RNA with this little addition gets inserted into a human genome, it will spit out just this, these pieces of protein. So that's the idea, right? The problem is, is that they're using human adenovirus. One of the concerns is that people have immunity to those. adenoviruses, cause called summer colds and stuff. And whether you can actually get an adenovirus infection established in a large part of the population that may have had previous experience with the viral vector. So that's the issue about the Russian vaccine. The AstraZeneca-Oxford vaccine uses a chimpanzee adenovirus, and so unless you've been working at the circus or something, you're probably unlikely to have come in contact with a chimpanzee
1: adenovirus. That's a good point. Just yesterday, from when we recorded this program, AstraZeneca actually put their trial on hold, right? Because they had an adverse reaction in the United Kingdom? Yes, so on the one hand, yes, that's a big hiccup and makes us all go, you know, oh, that's too bad. On the other hand, the bravo! It makes me feel better to like this is a scientific process instead of a political or profit-based.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and
1: at least the statement today from the CEO
0: said that they weren't getting any profits from this vaccine; they were doing it for the good of humanity. Thing
2: from your vantage point, when are we going to movie theaters again? When will be back in the baseball stadium? Those are two very different things.
0: So talk about outdoors. The Kansas City Chiefs are opening the NFL season tonight, and they're going to have ten thousand people in the stands. So the answer is, if you live in Kansas City, Missouri, it's now.
2: Yeah, uh, let me qualify that question safely.
0: Oh, I think it'll be pretty safe. Whether it's economically feasible to have one sixth of the gate in, I don't know.
2: How long does it really take before? herd immunity or combination of herd and or treatment and or vaccine that gets you to the place where we can resume everyday life?
0: I'll just say, forget about naturally acquired herd immunity. That's going to come at much too great a cost in terms of mortality. In terms of vaccine immunity, if the vaccines work and if they make it, we have enough of them and we can actually give them starting at the beginning of next year. I'd say this time next year, you could be in Dodger Stadium. But you may, there may still be social distancing and they're gonna to wanna to make sure you're vaccinated before they let you in.
1: First of all, I think people don't realize how long it takes to vaccine the public. My understanding is they're talking about, oh, maybe getting 3 million people vaccinated a day, which doesn't that mean that it's gonna take us five months to vaccinate the population? So let's just
0: start with California. California has 40 million people. So Dodger Stadium has 50,000 seats about, right. right? So that means you'd have to fill up Dodger Stadium 800 times. That's the kind of effort you're talking about. Um, We can no longer use jet injector guns, which is what they used in the old vaccination campaigns because of HIV and hepatitis C risk. You know, you're going to have to give individual doses with needles and syringes. So yeah, you can vaccinate 50,000 people in a day in one location. But to do all of California in four months, they're all two-dose series, by the way. So you have to give 80 million doses.
1: Everything is a two-dose? It's not just some of the? No, all the ones that are in advanced stages are two-dose, 21 and 28 days apart. There's a rumble going around, especially with millennials, that they don't want to jump into an early vaccine unless they're absolutely forced to. A, they feel like they're super people, that they're not really subject to it because they have a stronger immunity. And frankly, there's a lot of doubt about whether these trials are going to be complete and safe. What's your prognosis of us vaccinating our population successfully and getting enough people to participate? I think we'll be lucky if we get 50%. Is that enough to kind of push this hurt unity concept?
0: No. You probably need to vaccinate about 80%. So let me give you two factoids. So we go to the sort of our latest, greatest public health experiment, San Quentin State Prison. San Quentin had a horrendous outbreak of COVID-19. It didn't stop until 70% of the inmates, 7-0, were infected. So I think that's probably pretty close to where herd immunity lies. Now, is being in prison like being in the regular world? Who knows, right? Who knows how analogous it is? It might be closer to a cruise ship. But the ships got to 85%. So I think what we're going to say is that herd immunity lies somewhere north of 50 or 60%. If you have a vaccine that's 90% effective, which means you have to immunize another 10% to get to the 90% effective, and we're trying to get to 70% of the population immune, that means we have to vaccinate 77% of the population.
2: Right, that's a big ask, and that's probably not going to happen. But what you, I think we look for is, one, to have an option, so that there is an option for those people who believe in it and want to do whatever they can to prevent the illness, And then the rest, if they've so chosen, in this freedom of choice country that we live in, but also the magnitude of the illness and the magnitude of the impact on the population will still be markedly less. You will have had some people who've already had the disease, perhaps are immune. Those people who have been vaccinated, the severity, the intensity of the epidemiologic disaster that we're experiencing now will be mitigated tremendously, would it not?
0: It'll be cut down by the proportion of people who are vaccinated.
1: If the vaccine doesn't work, if it only partially works, is it possible that getting the vaccine gives you a less severe case, or is it just a yes or no question about whether you get the disease?
0: Well, they're judging it to PCR positive, uh, whether you're actually infected with the virus and not so much clinical disease. The the endpoints in the trials are about becoming infected, not so much about clinical disease although they will have clinical disease endpoints. The best way to prevent death is to prevent illness. The best way to prevent illness is to prevent transmission and infection. Can't people opt out? Of course they can opt out, unless they work in hospitals or going to schools, in which case they'll probably be forced. But you know, you're know, you gonna see people want evidence of immunity to get on an airplane, to walk into a restaurant, to go to the Dodgers game, to go into a theater.
1: You're gonna see a lot of pushback about people who don't get vaccinated. Is it impossible in this country for a government to say, you guys have to get vaccinated? I don't think it would ever happen. I mean, we can do it in the military. We can make it a condition of employment in hospitals
0: and nursing homes. We can make it a condition of attendance in schools. We could potentially make it a condition of employment by schools. So the University of California system is requiring everyone, including the guys who cut the grass, to get tested. The idea is that everybody's going to have to get vaccinated eventually. We have in fact acquired influenza vaccine
1: across all the campuses and for students as well. So speaking about the vaccines, just recently there was a joint issue of kind of a public pledge, I understand, company Pfizer and J&J talking about they're not going to seek approval for their vaccines until they're really ready and really safe. How do you feel about the process that these companies are going through and what level of confidence do you have? Well, that gives me a lot more confidence that they're not going to be a rush. There was nine
0: companies, by the way, nine CEOs who signed that. And it gives me quite a bit of confidence that we're not going to have a rush to something that's less than safe.
2: Are they really waiting for safety or are they using safety as a political ploy because their fear is that there is going to be political pressure not to put them out because of a ultra conservative government that we have now with the hope of a more liberal, socially conscious and socially aware government that may be coming in the future?
0: Understand the issue of safety is a complex issue with vaccines, because you're vaccinating people who have no disease. It's not like therapeutic trials like Steve does in the neuro ICU, where the basic patient population is very sick to start with. Here you're vaccinating people without any illness at all. So you have to be absolutely positive, to the greatest extent that you can be, that it's safe. Now, having said that, rare complications will not show up in the trials. And if they do show up in the trials, like this case of transverse myelitis in Britain, you know, that's a real signal flag that there might really be something there. But sometimes things show
1: up years later, right? Well, correct,
0: because you've all of a sudden, you you move from 100,000 people being in three trials to having 4 million people who've received the vaccine. Is this going to be a live vaccine or a dead one? Well, the adenovirus is live, right? That's the idea in the AstraZeneca vaccine, that you're given the adenovirus and that it replicates. The others are just pieces of messenger RNA. They're not replication competent. They're just pieces of RNA. Are those generally safer? Nobody has any idea. There hasn't been an mRNA vaccine before. And and, and by the way, the only adenovirus-vectored vaccine that's in general use is for Ebola.
2: Right. But think the concept being that you're giving somebody a live adenovirus that is fairly common in the community. We've been challenged with adenoviruses and we don't have pandemics and the severity of illness doesn't even come close to what we're seeing with Corona so that it then is bringing on a little piece of Corona with it. And then you're basically generating an antibody to the little piece of Corona that your body then will become immune to.
1: Yeah. Yeah interesting so let me ask both of you doctors when this vaccine comes out are you gonna take it in the first month wait 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 don't answer answer in 30 seconds we'll be right back
2: a moment of your time a new podcast from kurtco media
1: currently 21 years old and today, I felt like I'm magic extended from, from her
2: fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take of
0: care smile. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your me, voice. Trust me, every
2: do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my like dreams. Like
1: her fingers were facing me.
2: You can feel like your
1: purpose and your worth is really being it questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys
2: walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't
1: love humans. We never did, we
2: never will, we just find one The beauty are... of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right
1: in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay
2: apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time.
1: Okay, we're back with Dr. George Rutherford and Dr. Stephen Tabak. So guys, tell us, are you going to take this vaccine in the first month that it comes out? I can
0: absolutely guarantee you that I will not. And that's because I'm not going to be in one of the groups that's, that's supposed to get it. It's going to be given for healthcare workers who are actually seeing patients, unlike me, who are in ICUs and emergency departments, and on the hospital wards where they see the sickest patients. That's who's going to get it first, and that's who should get it first.
2: I definitely will be taking it. You know, transverse myelitis be damned, I'm going to take my chances and hope for the best because I think I have a better chance with a vaccine than if, de novo, I pick up this virus at 60.
1: So other than how long it will take for them to get to you, George, when will you take it?
0: When I become eligible for it? I'm 68. You know, I would not stand a great chance if I got this.
1: New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, said that New York City is going to resume indoor dining at the end of September at a 25 percent capacity. I was wondering, because right now, if you go to New York, it's kind of like Paris with a lot of outdoor cafes and it's, it's actually very nice. But come October, they're all going to have to go inside. Otherwise, you're going to have to wear a ski jacket when you're eating. So is that a good idea? Is New York prepared for that? Does New York have a kind of a a little bit of a herd immunity? Because their numbers are certainly impressive given how they started. There's some thought
0: that parts of New York may have upwards towards 40 or 50% of the population with antibodies. Now, I don't know that I truly believe all that. I don't know that what kinds of antibody tests they ran. The antibodies are a little complicated to test for. And we don't know that whether the immunity is transient or not yet. It appears if you look at the coronaviruses that cause common colds, the antibodies really are only protective for four or five months. I think operating restaurants at 25% capacity is probably a fairly low risk thing. I'd want to know how the air was handled. You probably want several air exchanges per hour, and you want all the air exhausted to the outside instead of recycled, which is tough with air conditioning.
2: Yeah, because to me, this whole concept of reopening restaurants, it, it's human nature. Oh, we're doing so much better. Therefore, we're now now we're safe it's sort of kind of denying the reality that we haven't done anything for this virus to go away. What we've done is we finally did what we were supposed to do in terms of social distancing and wearing masks. And it, that's the success. So to throw all that, you know, all caution to the wind, therefore we must be safe. Let's resume. Right. It's just asking for trouble. It's like, you know, we haven't done anything. Why would you expect a different outcome? So it's just very frustrating as a healthcare professional to say, what are you guys doing?
1: Guys, does this virus care about the weather as it turns out? Does it matter if it's a warm day or if we're in the middle of winter?
0: Probably a tiny bit, but not enough to make a difference.
2: So I have this theory about this coming winter. You tell me what what you think. I have a feeling we're going to have a fairly light winter relative to influenza and other respiratory viruses because of all the social distancing and masking and, and whatnot. What do you think?
0: You've been peaking. That's exactly what the Australian data say right now today.
2: Oh, is that right? Yeah.
1: Okay. But yeah, that's what I was figuring. Let's talk about more vulnerable. All of us on this discussion, if you were looking for us in the grocery store, you wouldn't find us in the spring chicken section. We're all somewhat more vulnerable than the teenagers, I imagine. If we do get it, has anything changed since March about whether or not we're going to have a bad experience with it?
0: Yeah. The mortality in the second wave is a lot lower than the mortality in the first wave. And part of that may be that people are just younger. Part of it may be better medical care with remdesivir and judicious use of steroids and prone positioning with oxygenation. It's very unlikely that there's any kind of configurational change in the virus. And in fact, the the data would suggest that it's actually gotten more invasive rather than less invasive. But what the real difference we think is, is that people are wearing masks, so they're getting infected with lower doses when they do get infected and they're having less severe disease.
1: So actually, if you start off with a smaller dose, your body has time to create some antibodies and fight the disease, as opposed to it's all going to end up the same at the end of the day and replicate at a certain level, and you're just going to get just as sick. So you actually get less sick if you get a smaller dose. That's the theory. Yeah. I mean, and and it's
0: actually been observed in it for influenza.
2: Have you heard of any promising uh, new treatments on the horizon? Because I figure maybe that would change the game here if we're all just waiting for a vaccine. But if we can cut the legs off of this thing when you get it so that you're not so worried about the effects, you know, that would have a major impact. Have you heard of anything?
0: Yeah. Well, there are two kind of classes. One are antiviral drugs of which there are, you know, a half dozen antivirals in trials right now. And some of them are actually being tried for prophylaxis and early treatment. So pro- when would you use an antiviral for prophylaxis. Well, we do it for influenza now. So, if there's an outbreak in a nursing home, we'll give everybody influenza antivirals until the end of the flu season. So, that's the kind of way we do it now.
1: For the rest of us, what's an antiviral? Like Tamiflu, right?
0: Instead of an antibiotic that kills bacteria or an antifungal that kills funguses, antivirals kill viruses. The other thing that's promising is trying to control the immunologic storm that surrounds the progression from upper respiratory infection to pneumonia to bad pneumonia to acute respiratory distress syndrome to respiratory failure and death. We've been using steroids like dexamethasone for that. There's this very cool thing at UCSF that's using nanoparticles to deliver basically receptor blockers. It's kind of cool stuff.
1: So let me ask you a question about the steroids for a second, because if something like a decadron is working, it's an anti-inflammatory, right? A steroid is an anti-inflammatory. So Explain to me why apparently ibuprofen is potentially getting an inverse effect and they're not recommending you take that when you feel lousy. If children have this, do not give them
0: aspirin under any circumstances whatsoever. There's a very, very bad pediatric disease called Rye's syndrome where basically your liver dissolves and that's triggered by aspirin during a flu infection.
2: But are we seeing that with corona?
0: No. I mean, nobody gives aspirin anymore for
2: anything, right.
0: <laughs> okay. except for rheumatoid arthritis.
1: Oh, wait, 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 wait. So when you say if your kids have this, don't give them aspirin.
0: Don't give aspirin to children for any reason at all. It's much simpler than that. I can make it much simpler and you don't have to differentiate among it.
1: So let's talk for a minute and let's assume that we're dealing with both the question of a vaccine And also, all the people who are running around who have recovered, what's the current thinking on reinfection right now? I know that we're talking about, oh, there are four cases or something like that that may have gotten reinfected. What's the real deal here? Is this virus mutating enough to make it so that someone who had it and got rid of it four months ago, they're just as susceptible as the rest of us?
0: Well, there are four cases, so you're right. They all were documented as coming from different viruses, right? So they're not identical genetically, viruses change over time. It took about four months between the first and the second infection. In three of the infections, the people got no symptoms or had very mild symptoms. In one of them, the person got sicker than he was the first time, which is concerning. Some of us are concerned about a phenomenon called antibody-dependent enhancement, or ADE. And that's something that goes on with tropical disease called dengue fever. The first time you get it, it's bad. The second time you get it, it's much worse. And so you, know, you don't know what you don't know, right? We're looking at four cases out of 25 million to try and parse out these pearls of wisdom. The other way to look at it is there are only four cases. And so it's an exceptionally rare phenomenon.
1: Does it mean there are only four cases? There might be 100,000 cases and we're only paying attention to four that kind of came to bear? Of course not. But we have. that's what's in front of us right now.
2: But if it was a pervasive problem, that would come to the fore. You would know that.
0: It may come to the fore next week. I mean, we're right sort of at the end of the kind of the four four to five months. But I agree with you. I, I think it would not be, this would not be subtle if it started to happen. You know, the other good story is that there was this great story. I don't know if you've heard this one, Steve. This American commercial fishing boat, crew of 122 from Seattle. Everybody got screened before they went to sea. Everybody was negative by the nasal swabs. They also had blood taken for antibody. They go to see, come back 10 days later, 85% attack rate for COVID. They run all the bloods. Three of the 120 people for whom they had bloods had neutralizing antibody, could actually measure neutralizing antibody, what we're trying to make happen with the vaccine. None of them got sick. Of the other 117, something like 107 got sick. So there's a story about neutralizing antibody being protective in the face of massive, massive outbreak.
2: Wow, that's very, I have not heard that story. That's amazing.
1: So your advice to folks that are over 50, over 60, over 70, where's the real problem start occurring? Is it an age-related thing or how does someone know if they just have to stay home again for the next year?
0: Well, I, I, clearly, the older you are, the greater your risk is. But as I also said, I just saw some data today, that which suggests that even among people over 80, the mortality rate is decreasing in the in the second wave as opposed to the first wave. And that may be better ICU care. It may be smaller, inocula because they're wearing masks. Who knows? But that's the observation. I think you have to be very careful if you're over 70. If you're over between 60 and 70, you can be a, a little bit more out there. Among younger people, the greatest risk factor is obesity of a BMI over 30. And then there's the usual sort of triad of heart disease, hypertension, pulmonary disease, pre-existing pulmonary disease, diabetes, smoking, which presumably includes vaping, although no one's shown that. I guess that's five, that's a pent head. First of all, everybody should be careful. You don't wanna get this disease. There are a lot of long-term consequences we haven't talked about yet. You don't wanna get this disease at all. And this idea that, well, oh, I'll get it, I'll get immune, and then everything will be fine, that's nuts there are a lot of longer-term problems. Let's talk about that for a minute. It's just kind of coming out now in football players that they've been screening for infection, and it turns out they have some sort of antimyocardial antibody. Right. So, so it's correct against the heart muscle. You know, that's not good.
2: No, it's a very systemic disease. You know, I, I, you look at this, and we're trying to draw comparisons to 1918 with influenza, and I know from our ICU where you have patients now with ECMO their lungs shut down from the virus, so they're clearly invaded, and we shut the lungs down further with ECMO, and we're just sort of bypassing their lungs. Two months later, they get off of ECMO, and their lungs seem to come back to full recovery. What we're seeing with COVID, obviously ECMO has worked in, in a certain number of cases, but so many of our COVID patients that have not done well their lungs are getting totally destroyed by this virus. It's not like you know there's terrible lung injury that then is amenable to cellular repair. It's turning to fibrosis. It's turning to scar tissue, and that's happening. You know, we're seeing it in myocardium. We're we're seeing neurologic issues that are long term and persistent. Young people, you know, who otherwise metabolically are improved but are basically comatose and and chronically vegetative because of multiple strokes, not to mention the vascular abnormalities. I sort of look at this, if you watched War Games, that movie when you were a kid, you know, like in the 70s, and, you know, when the computer finally realizes and it says, you know, peculiar game, the only way to win is not to play because they're talking about global thermal nuclear war. That's what this is like. The only way to really win this thing is don't get sick is prevention is everything in this disease.
1: Well, that being said, I have one more question for you, George. And I would like to congratulate you. Something magical just happened. You were put on the ballot for president of this country and everybody voted for you. So you are now in charge. (laughs) And so a little bit, we'd like to give you our sympathy, but we'd also like to ask you, what are you going to do to help guide us out of this thing from that vantage point?
0: Well, first of all, you have to put people in charge of the agencies who know what they're doing, who aren't political appointees, who actually are, you know, we don't put political appointees in charge of the Navy. You know, people who have careers in that, and then they kind of graduate up. You know, it's the same thing for public health. We should be putting people in charge of these agencies who know what they're doing, who have the experience, who have the training, who understand what is, who faced these crises before. That's be the first thing I would do. The second thing is I think you have to ramp up testing capacity like crazy. And the third, you got to make sure that people get vaccinated and you have to set examples about vaccination. The other thing is, is that we can't have this sort of ostrich-like existence with our heads stuck in the sand. You know, we have trading partners in Canada and Mexico who need vaccine just as much as we do. We have to figure out how to get along with everybody else. We have to be part of WHO. We have to be able to do things like take climate change seriously, which actually is probably what underlies this at its deepest roots, if you're going to do a root cause analysis.
1: Explain that to us, please, George.
0: That you have overgrowth of bat populations because of human migration and human land use, so that people come into contact with bats or the animals that come into contact with bats. This is what's happened with Ebola. In this business, it's always bats that get blamed, right? You know,
2: but it's really humans are the problem, but bats are getting the blame. (laughs) I'll be born a bat next time,
0: yeah. Yeah, and you know, you got to take climate change stuff seriously. I mean, I'm sitting here in Northern California. Yesterday, the sky was orange, and today it's pink. The fires and all that stuff—serious stuff. And you know, this is millennial, thousand-year cycles. We're perturbing, and there's a lot of ecological effects and ecosystem effects, and bat overgrowth, and people coming into contact with bats. That's just one of them. And population growth obviously adds to it. So those are the things I would take seriously. I think you have to take kind of a bigger view of, of this stuff. And meanwhile, set good examples, put good people in charge and and lead by example.
1: Okay. Well, Dr. George Rutherford and Dr. Stephen Tabak, thank you for that. We're going to leave that there. And George, if someone wants to follow you, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: You know, I do a lot of speaking at UCSF, either at town halls or at the Medicine Ran Rounds.
1: Okay. Well, Dr. Rutherford, I hope you'll come back and join us again. This has been both entertaining, enlightening, a little scary, but very much appreciated. I'd like to thank our producer, A.J. Mosley, and sound engineer, Michael Kennedy. Our music for Medicine We're Still Practicing is by Celeste and Eric Dick. If you've learned something here like I have, please forward this show to your friends. And yes, even your doctor, because they'll get a lot out of this too. We'll see you next time on Medicine, We're Still Practicing. Doctor, doctor, you gotta help us see what's going on. Doctor,
0: doctor.
1: From Kirko Media, media for your mind.